Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. If there's any place on the face of the earth that all the nations would gather today, it would probably be the United Nations. I do not know of any other meeting where all the nations are represented. They, of course, meet in New York City. Now, every once in a while, some dignitary uh, comes to the United Nations and addresses them. So what I want you to do is to imagine for a minute that the dignitary that comes to address the United Nations is the Lord himself. What would the Lord say to the United Nations if he came to address them? Well, I can just imagine there's a whole bunch of things he would say, but we don't really have to guess a lot because there is a passage of scripture where he addresses the nations. Now, in this particular case, he only addresses a handful, but they represent all the nations of the earth, which he clearly says. So what I want to do is look at a passage of scripture where the Lord addresses all the nations of the earth, and several in particular. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Zephaniah. Now, I suggested when we started looking at this book last time that you look at the table of contents, find Zephaniah, which is toward the end of the Old Testament. It'll tell you what page it's on, and then you can find the book of Zephaniah. Now, we've already looked at all of chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. But what I want to do is read again the third verse of chapter 2. It says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Now, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 3, is a unit. And as I pointed out last time, the unit is... The subject of that unit is the day of the Lord. As I explained, the day of the Lord is a period of time when the Lord intervenes in human affairs, and he very often intervenes with judgment. In the cases of Zephaniah 1, 1 to 3, to 2, 3, he is intervening in the affairs of the southern kingdom. And he pronounces judgment on them. Now, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, he goes beyond that and he starts addressing the nations around Israel. He addresses the Philistines or Philistia, Moab, Ethiopia, and Assyria. And if you looked at a map, you would see 
that those four nations surround Israel. For example, Felicia is to the west of Judah. Moab and Ammon are to the east of Judah. Ethiopia, which might be a reference to Egypt, but is clearly, if it's Ethiopia itself, is south, as was Egypt. And Assyria was north. So he's simply taking the four nations that surround Israel in all four directions, and he speaks to them directly. So what I'm going to do is take each of these um, uh, nations and see what God has to say to them. So let's pick up the story at chapter 2, verse 4. For Gaza shall be forsaken, Ashdod desolate, and they shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Now he's prophesying against Felicia. That doesn't become clear until later, but that is in the next verse. Uh, he refers to them by another name. But these cities are in uh, what is uh, known as Felicia. We know them as the Philistines. And so what he's doing is he's pronouncing judgment on the cities of the Philistines. So he says Ashdod would be destroyed in the middle of the day at noontime. Then uh, in the ancient world at noontime, people stopped work and uh, ate. So they weren't prepared for battle at noonday. The, the attack would have taken them by surprise. And after that, they took a nap. I think they still do that. Called it a siesta. Don't they do that in some places in the world? Well, that nothing's new under the sun. They did that years ago. And so this attack is going to take place when they are not alert and they are unaware of the invasion that's coming. Now, if you'll recall, there were several cities of the Philistines. Uh, Gath would be next, and for some reason, it's not mentioned. Um, one possible reason for that is that prior to this, uh, Uriah had devastated it, and it had not recovered since. So some suggest that's the reason it is not mentioned. At any rate, he goes on in verse 5 to say, Woe to the inhabitants of the sea coast." The nation of the Cherethites, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you so that there will be no inheritance. Now, he's getting around to naming the Philistines, but this is the area, and there are a number of different cities in it. The Cherethites are another name for the Philistines. But the point of verse 5 is that this. None of the inheritance on the Palestinian coast will be left. They're all going to be wiped out. The destruction was actually inflicted initially by one of the pharaohs of Egypt uh, somewhere around 1609 to 594 is when that particular pharaoh ruled, and he initiated the destruction of the Philistines and it was totally carried out later. So he says in verse 6, The sea coast shall be pastures with shelters, 
for the shepherds and folds for the flock. Now, verses 4 and 5 are saying, the Philistines are going to be removed. This is pronouncing judgment on them. What verse 6 is saying, and that in their place, the Lord is going to put a pasture for sheep and shepherds. So this is a reference to the fact that the survivors of the southern kingdom, Judah, would take possession of the coastal plain and provide shelter for the shepherds and pastures for the sheep. So the men of peace, that is the southern kingdom in Judah, will take the place of the men of war, the Philistines. He goes on to say in verse 7, the coast shall be the remnant of the house of Judah. That's the reason we know verse 6 is referring to them. Verse 7 tells us that. They shall feed their flocks there in the houses of Ashdod. They shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. So, instead of the being a pasture for the Philistines, the coastal plains would be a remnant for the house of Judah. So Judah's future occupation of the territory uh, is what is being predicted here. Now, this is really rather interesting. Let me see if I can explain. I almost need a map to do this. You know Palestine is on the Mediterranean Sea. If you came to the Israel by boat, you would hit the coast, and along the coast is a plain. Uh, then there is a mountain range. It starts up at Mount Carmel, and it comes down the center of Israel. And then after that mountain range, there's a valley, and then after that valley, there is the Jordan River. So that's the layout of the land. The Philistines occupied the seacoast. The Philistines occupied that plain, and it was actually given to Israel, but the Philistines came in and occupied it. So what the Lord is saying here is there's coming a day when the Philistines are going to be destroyed and the, uh, the, the children of Israel, the southern kingdom, will take it over and they will occupy it. Now, that should not surprise us. That goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Remember in the book of Genesis, God gave Abraham the land, then he gave it to Isaac, and then he gave it to Jacob? Well, actually, it's the Abrahamic covenant renewed to Isaac and Jacob that guaranteed that Israel would occupy this land. So, there's a sense in which this passage of Scripture is based on the Abrahamic covenant. That is the background or the backdrop for this passage of Scripture. And the Lord is simply saying, you occupy, occupy it now, but there's coming a time when all those cities are going to be destroyed and Israel is going to occupy that land. So, the Lord speaks to the nations. And what does he say? There's judgment coming. The message is judgment. Now, 
Why does the Lord judge the nations, especially those around Israel? Well, let's keep reading. It comes up. In chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, he moves on to discuss Moab and Ammon. Uh, this is to the east of Palestine. On the other side of the Jordan River, there is the modern country of Jordan. And uh, that's the kind of people, the, the people that inhabited it then is the kind of people we're talking about. So he says in verse 8, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. So he's saying that I'm going to deal with these two people together. Ammon was directly east. Moab was slightly south but east of Palestine. He's dealing with them together. They were two different countries, but they were both descendants of Lot. So perhaps that's why he's dealing with them together. In their earlier history, the descendants of Lot reproached and insulted the Israelites making arrogant threats against them. Now, this really gets at why the Lord is judging these people. He's judging them because of the way they treated his children. Now, we know about the Philistines that were constantly attacking Israel, and now he doesn't say that specifically in this passage, but we know that from the Old Testament. And now he says that the people, of the inhabitants of Moab and Ammon uh, have dealt arrogantly with my people. And that is his beef, and that's the basis of the judgment. So he says in verse 9, Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Adam like Gomorrah. Over uh, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. So this is the same message. Because of the way you treated Israel, I am going to judge you, and they are going to possess your land because of their hostile attitude toward Israel. Uh, he swore with a solemn oath, as I live, says the Lord, I will completely destroy these arrogant oppressors of Israel. They will be like Gomorrah. Ammon shall be overrun with weeds and salt pits, becoming a perpetual uh, as one author said, sterile wasteland that would no longer be fruitful. The remnant of the Israelites, however, would plunder those people and take over their territory as an inheritance, as an inheritance from the Lord. So, once again, the message is judgment. Only now we're given a reason why they're judging, and that is, verse 8 said, you reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. 
Now, pick it up at verse 10. This shall they have with their pride because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. In other words, the reason for the punishment of Moab and Ammon was their pride and their ridicule of God's people. This uh, is uh, repeated from verse 9. It's all the same thing. It's the way you've treated my people. That's why I am going to judge you. And it's going to be severe. Look at 11, verse 11. The Lord shall be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place. Indeed, all the shores of the nations. Now, this gets really interesting. Who are we talking about? Do you forget already? Ammon? And Moab, right? We're talking about two specific places in ancient times. But look at what verse 11 says. All the gods of the earth. So now all of a sudden, are we going beyond Moab and Ammon? And he says... uh, Indeed, all the shores of the nations are going to come and worship him. Now, this is very important. I've been saying that the subject of the book of Zephaniah was the day of the Lord. Last time, I defined the day of the Lord as the, a period of time when the Lord visits, intervenes in history, And very often in the Old Testament, in Joel and Zephaniah and some of the major prophets like Isaiah, it is a time of judgment. It is judgment on some specific nation. And then, all of a sudden, it gets expanded to go beyond that specific time or that specific nation, and it gets applied to all nations. So the day of the Lord was not totally fulfilled in the Old Testament. Some of it was, but some of it is yet to come, and this is one of those indications of it. So this verse says, the Lord will be awesome, meaning fearful, dreadful to them. That is, the Lord will deal terribly with them. But this passage goes beyond Moab and Ammon. And he says, the Lord will destroy the gods of the earth and all the nations of the earth shall worship him. That means that some parts of this prophecy have not been fulfilled and it awaits future fulfillment. Now this is very important. I've been saying that you need to know Zephaniah because you need to know the day of the Lord and you need to know the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord relates to prophecy that's not yet been fulfilled. Now here's the question. 
When is that verse going to be fulfilled? When is it going to come to pass that God is going to judge all the gods and all the people of the earth are going to worship him? When's that going to happen? Hadn't happened yet. Uh, He judged some of the gods, but he didn't judge all of them. In other words, uh, the, the day of the Lord at the time of Zephaniah sort of bleeds into the future day of the Lord. And that has led commentators to say things like, well, that part of the day of the Lord that was fulfilled in ancient times is a foreshadowing or a figure of what's going to happen in the future. But we don't have to guess. He says it in plain language that that is what is going to happen. So a number of commentaries have come to the conclusion that the latter part of verse 11 will be fulfilled in what theologians call the millennium. The word millennium is a Latin word that means 1,000. The book of Revelation in chapter 20 talks about the fact that the Lord is coming back, that's chapter 19, and he's going to reign on the earth for 1,000 years. And what a number of Bible students have concluded is that passages like this will be fulfilled when the Lord comes back and he restores Israel to the land and the knowledge of the Lord will be over the entire earth. Let me just read you a couple of comments. One commentator said, verse 11 anticipates millennial conditions when the Lord has reduced to nothing all the gods of the earth. Another said, in the millennium, people in all nations will worship the true God, everyone in his own land. The removal of the idolatry will pave the way for worldwide worship when Christ rules as king of the earth. And one more, the whole of the heathen world will succumb to this judgment. So, the day of the Lord, which is clearly a day of judgment that includes the southern kingdom, which is what we saw last time, now goes beyond that to nations surrounding the southern kingdom, and now goes beyond that to include all the nations of the earth, but that part has not yet been fulfilled, so that must refer to the future. And the one place we can place that is the kingdom when Christ returns. Now, there's two more nations he talks about. The next is the Ethiopians in verse 12. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. Very interesting. Uh, Ethiopia is below Egypt. It's south as compared to the west or the east, which we've already looked at, and might include southern Egypt, the Sudan, and northern Ethiopia. At any rate, some commentators say that it may just be another way of referring to Egypt at that time, or what we know as Egypt today. There is a reason to believe that that may be the case, because uh, 
the fortunes of Ethiopia were bound up with those of Egypt, which was subject to uh, the Ethiopian dynasties. At any rate, this verse says, the Lord said to them, you should be slain by my sword. Now, what does that mean? Well, what we know from history is that uh, these people were conquered by the king of Babylon, namely Nebuchadnezzar. As one scholar says, God promised to send his sword against this nation. His instrument of judgment proved to be Nebuchadnezzar, who defeated Ethiopia shortly after overwhelming all Judea in 586 B.C. The prophet gives no reason for this overthrow, though it must be that the Ethiopians shared the same disregard for the Lord that the other nations he condemns hell in this passage. So, the Lord starts west, goes to east, and now the south, and says these are going to be destroyed. Now, this has already been fulfilled. It was fulfilled in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed them. There's one more, and that's the Assyrians. Look at verse 13. And he shall stretch his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. Now to appreciate this verse, you need to understand a couple of things. Assyria is modern Iraq. It's north of Israel. The capital in ancient times of Assyria was Nineveh. Now you remember Nineveh. Who was famous for preaching in Nineveh? You learned that in Sunday school. Jonah. Jonah went and preached in Nineveh. That was several hundred years before this. The people repented. And then after that, they fell back into idolatry. So the Lord comes along and says, you are going to be judged. The Lord promised to stretch his hand against Assyria and let the capital of Nineveh uh, be as desolate, as dry as the wilderness. Now, Nineveh fell in 612. Prior to that, Nineveh was surrounded by a lot of water that flowed through the city. So what is significant about this verse is the Lord takes a city like, say, Venice, you know, where water is flowing through the city. They were very proud of their water in the city. And he says, they're going to be as dry as the wilderness. Now, that would have been a shock to them. But that is exactly what eventually happened. Verse 14, the herds shall be down in her midst, every beast of the nation, both the pelicans and the bitterns, shall lodge on the capital of her pillars. Their voices shall sing in the windows, uh, desolation shall be 
at the threshold, for he will lay bare to the cedar wood. Now, what he said in verse 13 is there was going to be desolation. It's going to be as dry as the wilderness. And what he's doing in verse 14 is he's describing the desolation in more detail. The destruction of Nineveh was so great that wild animals from all over the nation would lie down there. Instead of people living there, the city is going to be destroyed, devastated, and deserted. And so wild animals are going to live there. The birds would lodge there and sing in the pillows of the buildings. In short, Nineveh would be a refuge for animals and birds. Someone put it like this. Doorways of houses would be deserted. Only rubble would be there. The beams of cedars lying under the more elaborate walls and ceiling coverage would be exposed because the soldiers ransacked the houses. The image of one that emerges is of depopulation, destruction, and ruin. And sure enough, that is exactly what happened. And that is a foreshadowing and a prefiguring of the day of the Lord that is to come. One more verse. Look at verse 15. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. He's saying, look, this was once a proud city. They were carefree, thought they were impregnable. Nobody could defeat them. The city wall had become the boast of their pride. Nobody is going to defeat us. So verse 15 is describing the pride of the city. Now, to communicate this, I want to describe the city. To really appreciate this, you have to understand why they were so proud. Here's the way it's been described. The city was quite large, having for its suburbs an area circumference of 60 miles and a population of at least 120,000. That, by the way, is based on some statements in the book of Jonah. Uh, and then there was area beyond that. In addition to the extended outer wall, there was an inner wall within a radius of eight miles, 50 feet thick and 100 feet high. A wall that's 50 feet thick. Wow. What's, what's the length of this room? 30? 30 feet? All right. Double the length of this room, almost. And you've got the width of the wall. And it was 100 feet high. That is the equivalent of a 10-story building. 
Now, do you see why they were proud? Nobody's going to defeat us. Look at the wall that's around us. Sound familiar? Know anybody like that today? Proud? I'm not going to make it. Nobody's going to take me down. Let me continue. Between the two walls was enough farmland to support a huge population. Nineveh claimed that there was nobody beside me. That was an idle boast. For approximately 200 years, that was no idle boast, I should say. For approximately 200 years, she was superior in strength to any city of her time. An attack on the outer wall began in 614 B.C. by the Medes and the Babylonians. It was initially uh, withstood by the Ninevites, but a combination of trickery by the attackers, carelessness by the attack, and a natural disaster finally brought victory to the attackers. The great inner wall collapsed because of an unexpected deluge that swelled the Tigris River uh, in a normally dry season of the year and inundated the wall. Thus the city was unexpectedly defeated. The carefree boasting of the city was hushed by her enemies, and all who later saw its ruins scoffed at her uh, former haughtiness. To scoff and to shake the fist were signs of contempt. God reduced the city miraculously and gave it to the wild beast. Literally, what's described in this verse came to pass. All right. How are we doing? Did you get it? How was that for a history lesson? Okay, what I said tonight, very simple. Here's Israel. The book of Zephaniah says, the day of the Lord is coming, it's going to judge the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had already been judged. Then he says, and to the west and the east and the south and the north, all their neighbors are going to be judged because of their Pride. If I were going to summarize these verses, I would say that God promises to destroy the Gentile enemies of Israel, the arrogant Gentile enemies of Israel. Now, you're probably, do you love history? I like history. I love history. I think to most people this would sound pretty boring. Anything we can learn from this chapter? Uh, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should pass out clipboard and say, write down what you learned so far. And what you'd probably do is give me back some history. <laughs> you might name the four nations or the five and some of the things that he said. But what does this have to do with us? Anything? Well, let me close by making several observations. Let me tell you the spiritual lessons that come out of this passage. One of the things that comes out of this is God, the Lord, is the God of all the earth. Now, we know that, but 
you can read a lot of the Old Testament, and God is dealing with the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Samaria, Jerusalem, and they're his children and chosen. And you might just get the idea that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is. But in passages like this, we spill over the borders of Palestine. And it begins to come, become apparent that the Lord is the God of all the earth. So this passage is to all nations. And God is visiting the United Nations, pronouncing judgment on all nations. One Bible teacher said, Zephaniah turned from warning Judah to prophesying similar wrath and on her equally idolatrous neighbors. God is the God of all nations. And those nations that led Judah to stumble would not escape the fury of his wrath since he would punish Judah, he surely would not overlook the sins of the others. So, one of the things that jumps off the page is God is not restricted to Judah. He starts out talking to Judah, but he's the God of the whole earth. Now, let me make another observation. God is in charge of history. I think it's interesting that in this passage, he says, I'm going to destroy Ethiopia with my sword. And lo and behold, my sword is a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. So let me ask you a question. Is the Lord in charge of history? Is the Lord in charge of your life? One of the things that comes out of this passage is the Lord uses pagans to accomplish his will. He calls Nebuchadnezzar my sword. Matter of fact, there's a whole book of the Bible written to discuss this. It's the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk complains to the Lord and says, have you seen how wicked this place is? I mean, these people are really wicked. You ought to judge them. And God says to Habakkuk, uh, I, I'm going to do that. I'm preparing the Chaldeans, and they're going to come over and conquer them and judge them. And Habakkuk says, you can't do that. Why, they're more wicked than we are. How can you do that? And the Lord says, Habakkuk, sit down, shut up. The just shall live by faith. That expression that's quoted in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews comes out of the book of Habakkuk. And God is saying to Habakkuk, you ought to trust me. Now, let me tell you the rest of the story. As soon as I use the pagans to judge Israel, I'm going to judge the pagans. And that is a theme echoed in several places of the Old Testament. And Habakkuk says, wow, in wrath, remember 
mercy. So, what I'm saying is, in this passage, the Lord uses a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, as his sword, in this case, to punish the Ethiopians. In the case of Habakkuk, to punish even his people, Israel. Let me um, make a third observation. If there's anything that comes through this passage, it's that the Lord is the fierce enemy of pride. Matter of fact, in several places, it talks about your arrogance, your, your pride. The Lord hates pride. By the way, let me ask you a question. What is pride? I think we very often use pride when the proper word would be conceit. How would you define pride? Matter of fact, I had a conversation with a lady today, and the issue was, the mis- in my opinion, the misuse of the word pride. She was actually reading something written by somebody else, and I said, this doesn't make sense. Uh, this fellow doesn't understand pride uh, from a biblical point of view, from a theological point of view. Now, we use the word English. You're proud of your car. You're proud of your house, or you're proud of your work, or whatever. <coughs> but in the scripture, it's a spiritual issue. What was Satan's first sin? Pride. Well, what, what did he do? Remember, he said, I will ascend to the throne of the Most High. I will replace God. Pride is throwing God out and taking his place. Pride, the spiritual sin of pride, is you being in charge and not the Lord. And in this passage, he's judging these nations because of their arrogant attitude toward God's children, meaning their arrogant attitude toward God. And that ultimately is what is going on here. But I have one more observation. God is the God of all the earth. God is in charge of history. God is the fierce enemy of pride. And God will punish those who mistreat his children. You ever been mistreated because you were a Christian? You ever been ridiculed because you're a Christian? Been made fun of? That's exactly what's going on in this passage. And the Lord says, I will take care of that. Let me handle that. Now, I think this is a very important lesson, and I think it's easy to slide over this. So let me put it like this. Who, or I should say, to whom was this book written? Was this book written to the Philistines? No. Was it written to the Moabites? No. The Amorites? No. The Ethiopians? No. The Assyrians? No. It was written to Israel. They were the ones being mistreated by those nations. And the Lord says to them, hang tough, I will judge them 
because they mistreated you. One fella put it like this. The message here is to believers. While the message of the passage applies to the nations surrounding Israel, actually Zephaniah prophesied to the people of Judah about those nations rather than to those nations themselves, though they might have heard Zechariah's prophecy. His prophecy about the nations reminded the Judeans that the Lord was sovereign over all the earth. So, one of the lessons of this book is, if as a Christian, unbelievers are giving you a hard time, then just remember, God will punish those who mistreat his chosen people. Or in the words of this author, Zephaniah's prophecies about the nations remind the Judeans that the Lord was sovereign over all the earth. And that sentence really captures the drift and the spirit of this section of the book. The Lord is sovereign over all the earth. Father,